The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to have everybody along. I'm your host, JV Johnson. I hope you're being smart. I hope you're being safe and I hope you're doing the right thing. We've got an interesting show for you tonight. We're going to be talking to two different guests in the later part of the program, the latter part of the show. We're going to talk to Michael Telstar. He is a professional escape artist. He's also a remote viewer. He's a master paranormalist. We're going to find out what all of that means with uh, Michael in the second part of the show. In the first part of the show, we're going to be talking to a businessman and a philanthropist, Frank Skurlock. We're going to talk about this pandemic's effects on charities and the people that use those charities to survive. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Frank, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you on with us. Oh, well, appreciate uh, the opportunity to to talk to you. So let's get right into this because we don't have a lot of time with you tonight. But obviously, uh, you know, we are in a situation, what are we, third week into what is considered to be basically a lockdown for most of the country. People can't go to work. There is some kind of relief coming from governments, but it's not very timely. It's not very speedy. And people run out of money quick in this day and age. And when they don't have money, they can't buy food. So they look for help. They go to places like food banks and other charitable organizations that can help them out. But the pandemic has hit those two. What's going on around us that we need to be aware of? We need to get right back to the basics of life. I mean, we really do. I mean, economics is certainly important, and that can't be ignored. But you can't teach responsibility for mismanagement and failure to plan um, overnight. It's not going to catch up. you got to just hit the ground and figure out what's the right thing to do and how to rebound. So what we're doing is we are launching something called America's Bounce Back. It's americasbounceback.com. And it's going to be a series of things. Um, there's actually a lot of good things, ironically, coming out of this. The, the family values, you know, there's a very small percentage of America that ever really homeschool kids. It's usually like people of Christian faith or other denominations that were who the homeschoolers. Right. Now, it's all of America gets to experience what it's truly like to spend time 24-7 with your family, your children, your in-laws, everybody. Um, and that's what um, you got to look at it from a new perspective is with our the time that we're allotted, what do we do with that time? Where do we invest that, that time? And that's kind of what um, how we kind of got involved in this. Um, I am basically was retired for a few years, but what I did over my professional lifestyle my parents happened to invent this this um, inflatable amusement ride called a spacewalk. It's you know you blow it up at your house, you bounce up and down, you have a good time. Sure, yeah. My my mother coined the phrase "here 
Comes Fun. And our, our corporate website for that is herecomesfun.com. And what that really was about, and yes, we made money and all that. You have to. It's a business. But at the end of the day, it's about bringing people together. And that's what we've done. The home base entertainment is about to skyrocket. I'm actually talking to you this evening. Ironically, I live in a little town called Celebration, Florida, which actually happens to be on the ground of Walt Disney World. And very sadly, very mm-hmm. tragically, all Disney theme parks throughout the world are at a full ground stop right now. Yeah. And there is, there's really, um, I, 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 I can't even say there's no end in sight because it's just not, not fair. It defies the principle of what Walt himself would have done. However, if you put Walt in perspective of the old question, what would Walt do? And he would focus on bringing the family unit back together. Most people don't realize how it happened. Walt wanted to spend that quality time with his daughter. That was that magical bench that he sat at in San Francisco with the merry-go-round, and boom, it ended up going global. So kind of using that role model, which, of course, Walt is one of mine, being in the amusement and leisure business, we said, what can we do? So we want to paint a very positive message, a very positive vibe, is there's always hope. There's always opportunity. The thing that I'm really, really troubled with, in the past 12 hours, I've had texts and calls in over three potential suicide victims. Ooh. And so I, I dedicated more than half today getting psychiatrists involved, pharmacies involved. And these are people that most of them didn't even have hospitalization. They don't have a, a, a psychiatrist. And then they don't know how these drugs will potentially interact their body. So from there, you know, you got the psychiatrist, which is the medical side. You got the therapy side. Does anybody think about all the counselors that are going to be needed in the very near future? So whoever the, let's call it the patriarch of a family, that would be, when, when I was a kid growing up, it was my Aunt Linda. She became the patriarch. Nobody messed with Linda, and most importantly, <laughs> everybody followed Linda or else she got in trouble. <laughs> so we need leadership. Somebody needs to set the ground rules straight, and then you bring it back together. You know, I was born in 1962. It was a lot more simpler time. If you look at the really big achievements through my grade school years, the, the nation came together, and we, we basically utilized the space program, brought us together. I remember in grade school watching it, how my father, actually, that's how he got involved in the inflatables. He worked for NASA in New Orleans at a facility called the, the Michu Assembly Facility. They actually made the stack, or in other words, the Apollo rockets were actually based in New Orleans and floated to uh, Cape Canaveral. But that's what he was doing, leading to his industry. I'm the little kid in tote saying, watching all this magic come about and he invents these inflatables and we dedicated our family and our business to serving people now here's the connection it's not up to me to save them it's up to them to save themselves and that it, it's it's the it's the whole thing is it half full is it half empty is there a tomorrow but when they say is there a tomorrow they got to think for a second, wait a minute, I just went through today. So there is going to be a tomorrow. That's actually guaranteed if you let it. 
And one of the things that we find, and as President Trump keeps saying, don't let the cure be worse than the problem. Earlier tonight, I was at a gas station at 8.30 Eastern time trying to get gas, and I had to go to the bathroom. And you know what? They said, oh, you can't go in there because we just sanitized it so we can have it ready for tomorrow. And I said, well, what time do you close? They said, midnight. And I said, well, wait a minute. What happens to the people that come in after you sanitize it? And they said, you know, you got a point there. And so we need to really slow this big thing down and just break it into little bitty pieces. And it's, here's it. I had an incredible vision this afternoon. I said, this is the dilemma between the tortoise and the hare. It's what it is. The media is spinning it so fast. And our president, our government, the whole thing, they're delivering the worst conceivable news ever. God bless them for having strength to even get up on the stadium to speak to everybody. But when you think about it, if we're flying it so fast, saying, quite frankly, a lot of people are just turning the dial off. They know the message is going to be there. They know it's not going to be good. So let's go into the turtle and the tortoise mentality. Well, you know, you know, well, Frank, I just have to interrupt you because there's a bunch of different things that you brought up that I want to uh, kind of tackle uh, one by one. But one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, we have two fear, two things to be afraid of here. One of them is obviously a health a very, very direct health issue. We no have, doubt about we it. We see numbers of people dying. Basically, overnight, we wake up and another couple thousand people have died. That's not, we're not used to that. And especially the way, as you pointed out, you know, 24 hour news channels just keep reporting this stuff nonstop. But we're also looking at something that's, uh, that in some ways can be even more frightening. And that is the economic impact of all of this. We've had unemployment at uh, filings at record highs when we knew this was coming. I mean, the government basically shut down all businesses in some parts of the country and said, don't go to work, don't open your doors. And in some cases, they're threatening people with imprisonment or fines if they do. Very sad. So yeah, I, there is an economic... I, I heard in Los Angeles, they're literally drawing guns on people yeah. if they don't have the requirement of going to the store or receipt yep. or yeah. a doctor or hospital yeah this is this is then that's a third uh, issue that i wasn't even going to mention and that's this uh, this military state that we seem to have woken up in that yep. we're not used to but let's go back to the second one this economic apocalypse that right now we're, we're we're too worried about face masks and washing our hands just justifiably but at some some point there's going to be a hangover for all so, this well, and you, it's going to be an economic took one the word right out of my mouth so so i'm actually from New Orleans, okay? And, of course, everybody pretty much knows about Bourbon Street. Have you had an opportunity to walk down Bourbon Street before? I personally have not, no. Okay, well, guess what? When you have a good night, you do end up usually with the hangover, and you took the <laughs> exact words. It is going to be an economic hangover beyond belief. However, here's the beautiful side of that. Of course, I didn't go through the Depression and all that stuff, but, you know, we've got some good history books kind of show us what happened. Then we got the Hoovervilles that popped up there and things like that. Society has advanced really through technology. I mean, just look at what the major retail, specifically Walmart, has done. You know, once they got in really military mode, I just was out there today. They are completely packed, and they are ready to go with food. That's the very first thing 
that comes to people's mind. They obviously, well, they really thought the opposite. They thought it was the bathroom, so that's why they ran on the toilet paper. But at the end of the day, it's about consumption of food. So, so here's something. Did you happen to hear about the video out of the French Quarter in New Orleans of all the rats taken over? I have not, no. So there, there was a video that a friend of mine shot, and it went viral on Facebook, and actually CBS News picked it up. It was on the morning show this past weekend. And so my friend is a historian also, and he's videoing all the incredible buildings in the French Quarter. And all of a sudden, he just noticed they're being overrun by hundreds, if not thousands, of rats because they're in seek of food. Okay, because they're starving. Yeah. And when I saw that come down, I said to myself, my goodness, that's going to be the exact same thing that's going to happen on an economic sense. And, you know, yes, everybody's getting ready to get their stimulus check. You know, if they, they pay their taxes, if they have good information on file, and quite, quite frankly, I don't even know if you even have to be somewhat legit. You, you, you would think that, that you should, but a lot of people are getting ready to get a lot of money, but it's not enough and it will never be enough right so that's when it also goes into you know and i hate to use this phrase and i might already said it once you cannot you cannot teach responsibility overnight also the housing and stuff and quite frankly i'm really greatly concerned about the potential economic i don't even know if i'd call that a, a hangover that's a just an apocalypse yeah. getting ready to happen sure is i mean you have no revenue nothing more than handouts and stuff, and you got pre-existing built-in mortgage, rent, or even if you're debt-free, you still have other obligations. You got your taxes, you got your insurance, then you got your just like you said, your cell phones, your all your associated things. So a simplification of life is definitely in order, and it's going to be a good reflection for everybody. However, once again, there's hope because I have past international business experience. The other night, between midnight and 4 o'clock in the morning, I called several countries. I called South Africa, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, and India. And you know what all those countries were doing when I called them? Absolutely nothing. They were actually at a full ground stop like we are here. Right. And so I was thinking about it, and I started asking, well, what is your government doing? And they're really kind of being very evasive. At least we have a great big printing press. When Trump signed the stimulus package, I said, you know, back in the days of the impeachment and stuff, they had the pens and stuff like that. I said, well, he needs to take out the gold pen because what he just signed, in my opinion, is probably the largest check ever written in the history of this country. I think that's probably I think that's probably true. Yeah. And that was just the first one. And quite frankly, I think that was that was the you know, when when you go buy a house, you put up some 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 earnest money. To initiate it, I think that was the earnest money. We got some much, much bigger things, and so we we were in this hamster wheel that was going so fast. We almost were, you know. They always said keeping up with the Joneses. At this time, it it just doesn't matter. You're you're you you are yourself. When when you came down the birth canal, who were you with? It was really you and God, right? And so when you think about it. That's how it is, and when and you know, I'm, I am a little of a, um, uh, I'm a highly spiritual person. And, and, and by the way, it, it's not promotion of, of any language or excuse me, any religion. They pretty much all go back to the same principles. And this is where it's the simplification, and perhaps maybe at a at a much later 
time in life, or should I say an earlier time in life, it was that way. But all of a sudden, we sped it up, and we complicated it. And it was, the ride was fun. It was amazing. But the ride now is going to be those simple leave-it-to-beaver type days. You remember that wonderful program on TV? Sure, yeah. Miss, Mrs. Cleaver and stuff like that and Wally. It, it has to go there. And quite frankly, it really needs to go straight into Alice in Wonderland because <laughs> it's, it's what you perceive. It, I mean, what I like to call it, I always love to be a proponent of living in the now. Let's just move on. This is, a, this is the N-O-W time. So let's, let's push forward. And our thoughts, just like your show, which I think is wonderful, you make your own reality. We have just a couple of minutes left with you. I do want to just paint a little bit of a picture and get your take on it. So um, I live in and broadcast from Cooperstown, New York. You may know of it as uh, the home of the Baseball Hall of Fame. In there, yep. We have about 1,000 full-time residents. The county itself has a total of 60,000. It's a very rural area. The closest city that has any kind of mall or shopping of any kind is an hour and a half away. So we're a bit remote. We're very rural. This town, and the whole county for that matter, uh, thrives on a summertime tourism population. And this tourism population comes for the Baseball Hall of Fame, but more importantly, recently, it comes because there is a facility here called the Cooperstown Dreams Park, which brings in 120 or so teams, baseball teams, of 12-year-old boys um, every week. 120 teams of 12-year-old boys every week, and they play a a week's tournament, and then they go home, and and it starts all over the next week. So for 10 weeks of the summer, we get 120 teams times 15 kids per team, plus mom and dad and maybe a sibling or two. They all come here. They uh, eat. they, they, They drink. They buy stuff in the shops. That's the economy. And uh, the sales tax revenue from that activity supports the entire county, not just the village of Cooperstown. So because of this uh, pandemic, this facility, Cooperstown Dreams Park, announced they will not have any tournaments for 2020. So all of the businesses and the local governments that rely on the sales tax and the businesses that rely on the commerce will have no season for all of 2020. So that means about 18 months without any significant revenue. I don't care what kind of stimulus check comes out of Washington or, or Albany or wherever mm-hmm. it comes from. Right. You, there, I don't see a fix to that. That is not something that most of these businesses can actually rebound from. They Sure, they can get a, a check that covers three months, but what about the other 15 months where they will not have the revenue to pay their mortgage, their rent, their whatever it happens to be? I see this to be a far deeper problem than just, you know, the, the weeks or a couple of months that we're well, going to be uh, stuck at home. Yeah, and I, I heard your voice this then, your, your vibration. I hear your concern. And, and this early this morning, I had a conference call about 6 o'clock with some very significant economic people that have gone into Detroit, revived it. They were actually in Puerto Rico this morning reviving that. And we were just, you know, sharing minds and observations around. And one of the people in our call came up with, and he shared what I believe will be the two words that we will take forward from this. And that is, at the end of the day, the whole world was affected, as I just confirmed. But it's, we're going to come back America strong. And that America strong 
is only going to exist because of a new philosophy in life. Those two words are reverse globalization. I've said for a long time that if we're going to start spending more federal money, which is borrowed money, uh, and we all have to recognize that, um, if we're going to start spending more of that, it should be uh, it, some of it should be used to bring manufacturing back to the United States from China, particularly of our pharmaceutical industry, which it's a scary, scary concept that China, uh, so which is... You're, look, when, when New Orleans got taken out by the hurricane, mm-hmm. my factories were there. We were vertical. We built our own products, and we had 200 chains. So I went to China. I lived China for over 10 years, and I agree 100%. It is incredibly how they stole our economy from us. Yeah. So we, we can get it back. Just look at the shipping logs of everything. Um, if you want to have fun, there's actually a, a, a container sh- uh, program that you can see where all the shipments used to come from. Everything came from China. Yeah. Let's stop that. Yeah. I agree. Um, Frank, we're out of time. Thanks so much for uh, joining us and providing a bit of a message of hope here. Give me one more uh, a sentence description of what your website, americasbounceback.com, is about so people know what they're to expect when they go there. You know, uh, first off, it's not launched officially because things are happening so fast. Our launch date is Sunday, is Easter Sunday for the resurrection. So it's about just the rebounding, and it's at the end of the day, it's about saving humanity. Terrific. Um, again, Frank, thanks for being here. A pleasure to talk to you. Look forward to ha- uh, having you back on at some point. We can chat again. All right. God bless and have a great night. Have you found the Noodle Shark yet to save money? It's on Facebook, The Noodle Shark. Don't forget to swing by the YouTube channel. Please subscribe. Go to YouTube. Search for my name, J.V. Johnson. The channel's actually called J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. It's a great place to uh, catch up on back episodes. There's about, I don't know, I think there's 600 back episodes or so on the YouTube channel. However, when I look at the official count, it doesn't say that many. It says about 500. So I'm not sure where the disparity is. I don't know. But anyway, it's, there's a lot of them there. Nonetheless, there's no charge to subscribe. Just click the subscribe button. It's very, very simple. Also find the show on all major podcast distribution platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. It's there, and it's uh, it's very easy to subscribe, and you get the show downloaded to your smart device automatically. That gives you an opportunity to catch up on a program if you miss one of the live broadcasts, like this one that we're doing right now. If you do join us for the live broadcast, be sure to join us on the YouTube channel for the live chat. That's a lot of fun as well. Our second guest of the evening is Michael Telstar. Michael's a master paranormalist. He's an escape expert. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about mind over matter and remote viewing with Michael. Michael, welcome to Beyond Reality. Great to have you. I'm happy to be here, uh, JB. I'm sorry we kept you waiting. I know I told you, I think I told you, or Slick Eddie told you that we'd have you on about 1130 our time, so we're a few minutes late. So thank you for being patient. Well, better late than never. How did you get started? How did you get started with all of this? Um, you know, not everybody wakes up in the morning and says, "I'm going to escape uh, from dangerous situations for a living." Well, <laughs> I got into escape artistry um, around 14 years old. I read a book about Houdini, and I was fascinated by his exploits and by his mind over matter ability to escape from any any bonds, shackles, didn't matter what it was, straight jackets. And I studied and read all about him, and I started doing these crazy escapes, and I became uh, 
uh, professional at 17, where I was also the youngest person to perform the most dangerous escape, which was the water tank escape, where you go upside down, you know, your feet are shackled, you go upside down, and you escape in the large tank of water. So that was a world record, my first world record, and then I got six more after that in escapology. That's um, that's amazing. Uh, you should be uh, admired for that. But I want to talk about this Houdini connection because I too was fascinated with Houdini as a kid, and I, I actually chose Houdini as a character to do a biography or a report in school one year. Mm-hmm. On read his uh, his biography. You know, uh, fascinating mm-hmm. character, and he is one of these people that remains fascinating to this day. You know, he was doing his thing about a hundred years ago, and yet to this day, he is one of the most intriguing people of pop culture. What makes him so enduring? Well, Houdini was a, an incredible showman, and uh, he wasn't, you know, he started from the very bottom rung of the ladder. He started doing magic with cards. He built his, he built his talent and his abilities up with time, and uh, he's just an incredible showman, and he knew, he, you know, during the Great Depression, he was around, and he would... Uh, do these incredible escapes. And so he would give everybody watching him a temporary escape from, from their life, so to speak. So he, he would challenge um, any anybody, carpenters, mechanics, uh, engineers, anyone, to come up with something that they would, you know, lock him up in and he would have to escape. And I guess he, he was just somebody that never, he never turned down a challenge, but he also never did an escape that he knew he couldn't escape from. Although he did have several close calls where he almost died. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I know that to be true as well. Did he blaze this trail, or did he uh, stand on the shoulders of others that did this before him? No, he, he basically... He was, he was the most famous escape artist who ever lived, but he was also an incredible illusionist. He was the first illusionist that made an elephant disappear, just to let you know. And he was the first illusionist that made an eagle appear. Huh. So other... Performers came after him doing similar feats, but he knew a lot about how the mind worked, and he did admire Robert Houdin. Robert Houdin was a uh, illusionist during the 1850s, and he was a master watchmaker, and he turned his talents to an illusion, and also automatons, where he would make these incredible robotic figures and illusions. And the French government actually hired him to be a secret agent and that was fascinating as well. A lot of people didn't know that, of course, when he was around. So he would, he would use his illusionary talents, you know, uh, in his work. And uh, Houdini read his book and uh, became spent with him. And that's why he changed his name from Eric Weiss mm, yeah. to Houdini. And I like Jean in French, which I like. So he put the word I, letter I, at the end of Houdin, and that became Houdini. And that's what that he got his name. So you were inspired by all of that, and you decided to start doing some of this on your own. You started rather young, um, and I, you know, I know that you set um, some records and, and tried some very, very uh, what I would consider to be dangerous escapes as a as as a teenager. In fact, tell us a little bit about that, and how how did you start? What did you what what types of escapes did you start with? Working your way up to the uh, water cell torture escape. Well. As a as a as a little uh, test, you know, to test out some of the theories and some of the techniques that I learned, <laughs> I had my friends tie me up with rope, ten feet, twenty feet, up to one hundred feet of, of rope, and they would tie me up in all manner of ways, and I would always escape. And I, they didn't understand how I did it, and I 
I did, of course. I learned lung control. I would inhale as much air, contract the muscles, you know, to be able to have some, uh, you know, be able to escape from the ropes. And basically, I just built up my way from there. I took a lock spitting course, learned how to pick locks. Um, I might have been more successful as a career, no, I had wanted to be. I'm just kidding on that, but <laughs> but uh, but I, I, from there, I, I uh, got a straight jacket. Uh, learned how to get out of a straight jacket. I have a world record for getting out of one 21 times six and a half hours, and I did this in Edmonton for the Edmonton Combat Days. And I also raised money for a charity, and uh, and then I got into the water escapes. The take escape was probably the most difficult one that I did. And I uh, still have my I have my second tank today. So, and uh, the death plunge was a boat escape where I was handcuffed, shackled, and manacled to a rowboat. And the rowboat had explosives on it set to go off in four minutes. It was towed from the shore, 150 feet from the shore. I had the bomb squad, the uh, police, the harbor master, ambulance. And I had a scuba diver there in case something went amiss. Something did. I went in the water two hours before stunt to get used to the cold water. It was very cold. It was October 28th when I did the stunt. And I got used to the cold water. That was fine. But what I did anticipate was that after I escaped my restraints and I dove into the water, the, when the bomb exploded, the concussion and the shockwaves pushed me directly to the bottom, which was about 25 feet from the boat. Mm. And while it did that, it took most of the oxygen out of my lungs. I wasn't, I wasn't totally out of all my restraints yet. And because of that shockwave pushing me right down, it kind of made, put me in a small daze. Scuba diver noticed something wrong, came down to the ball and put, pulled me up. If I hadn't had him there, JV, I probably would have drowned. Wow. If I hadn't had him there, I would have drowned. It would have wow. been too late for them to swim out 150 feet, you know, and retrieve me. But I'm not even sure if I would have made it to the top, to tell you the truth. But being cautious, I did have a scuba diver there. Uh, he always accompanied my water. Sure, steps. sure, yeah. Um, I want to take this back to the beginning. And s- something, by the way, um, Michael, I'm not sure if you're if you're near an electronic device, but something's causing some interference with your phone. If we can figure out what that is to avoid it, it'd be helpful. But um, uh, yeah, I'm in a quiet place now. But is you st- are you still picking it up? Right is now, I'm not. Furnace, maybe. Nope. Right now, I'm not. No, there's no noise now. Okay. Um, it just okay. it was coming and going a little bit there. But anyway, let's go back to the basic escape here. Let's talk about the straitjacket. How do you, if you could describe this for somebody, how does someone get out of a straitjacket? Well, <laughs> I guess you'd have to be crazy to get in one first, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but straitjacket is a device of a straight used to put out people. And it was a very barbaric form of, of restraint. And there would be several straps that would, your arms would go in like an inverted coat. And basically, I had to learn how to increase my lung control, how to expand my lungs, and basically be very nimble. It's not easy to get out of the straitjacket. Obviously, it's built so that the more effort you put into escaping, the tighter it becomes as well. So you have to learn how to direct the energy and, and be able to direct it in such a way so that you can escape. And escaping from the straitjacket upside down was always easier than doing it right side up. Oh, really? So, so, so it's actually, hold on, it's actually, it's, did it, and I thought that it, I found it was easier because gravity would help me to escape with my jacket. So it's actually easier to escape when you're upside down. Yeah, yes, because I'm not, I'm exerting energy, but not as much because I'm standing, if I'm doing it right side up, I'm, I'm, I'm tumbling and I'm somersaulting on the ground, trying to get, you know, rolling on the ground, trying to 
get some slack and so on and so forth. And, and upside down, though, I have the gravity and I can wiggle. Basically, have a lot of energy there, but wiggle. You know, the, the jacket has a has a strap that goes in between the legs. That's strapped, you know, to the back as you yeah. do. So you'd have to you'd have to work your hands out of the sleeve somehow and get your hand to that strap at the back to remove the strap that's in between your legs. So if you don't know how to get out of it, of course, it's going to be painful, and and you're not most people won't be able to get out of it. Yeah. Now I'd heard that Houdini um, would dislocate his shoulders or something. Is that true? That's yeah. That's a nice. That's a nice. Uh, I guess that's one of the myths of Houdini. Uh, let me just put it this way. He was very, his shoulders were very, very nimble man. You have to be very nimble yeah. and almost uh, a circus acrobat to be able to get out of the straitjacket. But though he didn't dislocate his shoulders, but he probably did have them dislocated in some sense. Yeah. And that is a result of the straitjacket. Okay. Well, he was, he was, I think, if I remember correctly, first of all, he was very, very fit. But secondly, he was, uh, yes. he was, he was a, kind of a smaller man, wasn't he? Yes, five feet, five inches tall. Yeah. Very powerfully built. Yeah. Uh, his muscles were very, his abdominal muscles were like oak boards. He'd have strong men from the audience punch him in the midriff. Yeah. And uh, just to see how, you know, he would get his stomach muscles tensed. And uh, that's ultimately what causes death, though, unfortunately, one of the things that happened to him. Yeah. Uh, to describe the water cell torture escape for people that aren't familiar with uh, with that particular uh um, escape that Houdini was famous for? Yeah, it's a water tank. It's about six feet by three feet square. And uh, my legs are placed in a kind of a large manacle type thing. And uh, my hands would be handcuffed or I'd be put in the straight jacket. I'd be raised upside down, raised upside down, and then lowered into the tank. And the, the mechanism at the top would be locked to the tank. So the idea, of course, is to escape from that before you drown. And uh, it's a myth as well, too, that Houdini died doing that stunt, which is not true. I know the Houdini movie, the Tony Curtis, 1952, does show that. Yeah. And but he doesn't. He didn't die doing the thing. He had to take stunts in his act for 13 years, JV. So, and Houdini also had an emergency precaution. If something happened to him where he felt he would pass out or he could not escape, he was he had two special plugs at the very bottom of the tank, and he would put his hand on that handle. And you could plug and give it a good twist, and then of course you would pull it out, and then the water would just come out. But he never had to use that in his life. He never had to use that safety mm-hmm. precaution. But he had that built. He also had it built too because it was easier to get rid of the water from the tank empty it. But it was really a, an emergency precaution in case he couldn't escape. So that that must be that must be must be quite a feat. Um, given all of these escapes and the level of danger that are that's associated with some some of them, have you ever felt? That uh, afraid during uh, an escape attempt to the point where you started to panic. Well, yes, because if you're not confident, if you know what you're going to do and you're not confident, then you're going to panic. And I learned, I learned to control my emotions. I knew what to do, and I had to, you know, follow the procedure. But there were times when I was younger where I may not have been as confident or overconfident, or I may not have been able to rehearse it as much because it's sometimes difficult to rehearse these kind of things, like the moat stunt, for example. But there were times where I felt like I was going to drown a few times and, uh, you know, where I felt I was going to, the legs were going to be released from the uh, 90 feet up in the air and upside down. 
and uh, felt like my legs were slipping through the rope because my, the person who tied me, my legs to the crane, did not do it properly. So there were a few times where I felt like, I, you know, if I, if I moved too much or moving the wrong way, I would go right down. Of course, I got a safety belt. I was, you know, <laughs> I got wise to that. I got a safety belt, which I had strapped around me just in case my legs didn't release. And that way, it would be an uncomfortable drop, you know, but at least that I would hit my head and smash it on the concrete below. Right, right. Um, let's move on and, and talk a little bit about some of this other work that you do. One of the things that you say is you believe that we're more than our physical selves. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, uh, we're more than our physical selves. Uh, you know, we're, not, we're multidimensional beings, JV, uh, and uh, basically... We have, you know, we have the physical body. We have the non-physical, you know, body, the astral body, if you want to call it that. We got the dream body. You know, we're able to visit these other locales, and that's what I refer to as the ultimate escape. And that's what got me into the uh, energy, you know, and the other applications of what I was doing. I got interested in that relatively young as well, and I did have some out-of-body experiences. So I went to the Monroe Institute, Mr. Monroe was the pioneer in the out-of-body phenomena, and uh, as some of your listeners might know, and um, I learned there, to go, I took the programs there, I was having a lot of OBEs, and fear, fear is a terrific inducement to having OBEs, and uh, I was having a lot of fear, but not from the physical escapes, but not from, from the non-physical ones, from the escaping from my body, so to speak. I was having conscious OBEs, and uh, they were very frightening, and uh, because I would see these entities, I would uh, see these beings, and I wasn't sure if I was dreaming, but I knew I was awake, and uh, they would be very vivid, very real. And so I went to the Monroe to learn how, you know, what this ability was, and to learn how to develop it. So we are, we are, we're not just physical beings, you know. We have energy, we're energetic beings, and uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, the astral body, as I mentioned. And so uh, we're more than our physical selves, and we're more, you know, and because of that. We can perceive that which is greater than the physical world. And it's, we're not just, in other words, we're not just stone, you know, mortar, you know, stone or flesh and blood. But we have this capacity to, you know, have an OBE, uh, become awake and aware in the dream state, which is lucid dreaming, and so on. Now, obviously, the escape uh, performances that you give, you know, when people go see something like this, they don't expect magic to be happening behind the curtain or whatever it happens to be. They expect somebody with some real skill uh, perform an amazing yeah. stunt. Um, so yes. so part of your life is that, which is a real physical yes. thing. I mean, you it's, it's, it's demanding on your body. It's very, very physical. And then you're saying there's another part of your interest in things that you've pursued that are very uh, metaphysical. Um, they're spiritual in a sense. They are mind over matter, if you will, one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, do the two go hand in hand? Are they two very distinct things? Well, no, they, they do go hand in hand. And the thing is that, uh, you know, I uh, you, you have to be able to first know that you're more than your physical self. And majority, many people will realize that through a near-death experience or through a conscious or unconscious OBE. And basically, uh, you know, you, you, people that have had uh, surgery, uh, you know, will talk about having left their body and describing the surgeon, surgeons and, the, uh, you know, the, uh, what was happening, you know, during surgery. Uh, it happens, you know, uh, through uh, fear, through, uh, you know, different things will trigger it. 
And, uh, of course, you don't have to die to have a conscious OBE, which, you know, you, <laughs> ultimately you're going to have, and that would be the one of the ultimate escapes, right? But uh, I think that when people realize that they really, really are more than their physical selves, they can understand energy. And the physical domain here is it's a reality for us, but it's also a great illusion, JV. So it's, it's, a, it's a dense reality. You know, and there are other realities that are actually more, how shall I say, they're more real than this one here. And so those, those realities we can tap into, and they are, we are connected to them. We're multidimensional, so we have that capacity to do that. You said you've had, I think you used a plural, you've had multiple out-of-body experiences. Yes. And you're not talking about near-death experiences where your heart stopped no. beating. You're talking about just no. out of body. Um, describe yes. one of them to us. What did you see, and and, yeah. and, and how long did it well, last? I, I started having them around uh, 12, 13, 14, when they were happening pretty regularly. And I would be, you know, sleeping. And I, no, I noticed that my body was bilocated, or I would wake up and it was, there was a bilocation. So I felt myself laying down on the, on the bed, but I also felt myself elevated anywhere from a few inches to a couple of feet. And that would, that would, and I know what was happening there, but I didn't know why it was happening. I didn't know a lot about it yet. I thought a lot of, a lot of the, you know, kids were having it. It was a, a regular, uh, state of being that, you know, that, that everybody experienced, but it wasn't, that wasn't the case, of course. I told my father about my experiences and he took me to the, uh, Park Institute here in Toronto. And uh, to see if there's anything wrong with me, they told them I was fine. So uh, anyway, they didn't they did ask all these questions, you know, that I thought they would ask. But basically, um, so I had these experiences, and, and I had a lot of, uh, uh, when I got, you know, I was able to induce them to a certain degree consciously, and I would hear these voices, uh, you know, I would uh, see these uh, beings that look like ogres or uh uh, monsters, or I don't know what you would call them, you know, and I didn't know what it was. And there were some periods where I didn't sleep for 24, 48, 96 hours because the fear was so vivid and real that I didn't want to go to sleep because I'd have a, I'd have a, a conscious projection or I would wake up out of my body there in, in the bedroom or whatever and I'd, I'd see these beings. My, so Michael? That, that Michael? For a while. That's why I went to the Mother Institute at 21 years old. Yeah, Michael? It was to get rid of the fear barrier. Michael, I just want to understand this. So when you were having these out-of-body experiences, you were uh, you could see your other self, like if you were lying in bed or whatever it happened to be, you could see yes. that. And then you also saw these other beings, you described them as ogres. Ogres or, yeah. They monsters were, like, of monsters some kind. And they would threaten to kill me. You saw, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know, to, to kill me, come out, we're, we're waiting for you, you know, and it's almost like if you were there, imagine if you were lying in bed physically, you woke up to two or three uh, you know, people that, or somebody that broke into your house and threatened to kill you if you got out of the bed, right? And it was, I mean, it was that vivid. It was that real. It was not dream. It was not a dream. Or right. Whatever. No, but what, I, what I'm so, trying to, what I'm trying to figure out here is, 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 uh, what you, uh, may have been, been seeing. You know, you're describing something and I'm trying to make a connection here. So you were seeing yourself. Plus, you were seeing these ogre figures, these monsters, and you said that you they were th- they were menacing, they were threatening to kill you. Were you watching yes. them? Were they attacking or doing something to your physical body? And you were above this, watching the scene. No, like I, I would, 
when I when I say that I was observing it, I, I would be out of my body. I would see a body on the bed. It was my body, right? But it didn't look like my body. But it looked different because I'm looking with wrong physical eyes. Yeah, and. Most people are not going to look back because they're not going to have it. In, 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 uh, they're not going to have it. It's going to last that long. They're not going to think about turning around and looking down. But I did see these beings, and I would, what I would do is I would, like, literally fly out of the house, just fly through a window, fly out, and it would so follow you, me. So you would, you, you would, you would, so, were, were you doing that consciously? Were you trying to escape what you were seeing? Is that why you would yes. fly out of the house? Yes, because they were there. They were there. The presence was there. And at first, the the fear would make me go back to my body quickly, but I would stay out longer, longer, longer. And I I realized they really couldn't hurt me, which took, you know, three, four years for me to realize that I would stay out longer. And then they didn't didn't bother me anymore. I didn't have any more problems with them. But it it took me a while to get rid of the fear barrier. What what do you think those beings were? Do you think there was some type of demonic presence? Do you think it was an alien presence? I, I, think, what, I think there were just uh, beings that fed on emotion. Uh, you know, call them what you will, elementals, demons, or whatever. But uh, And I met a lot of beings through the state. I met a lot of beings, you know, and I learned not to uh, be to be as objective as possible, not to be subjective, because that was really important. You, you see something that looks like a demon, and you act in fear, then you're going to react like it's a demon. And it, and it may not be a demon at all. Uh, and it may be something with wings, and it's not something what you think of as an angel. I mean, so people will usually be subjective. But so I learned when I went to the Monroe to be objective and not to label what I saw, just to observe it and to see it for what it was. But I did encounter a lot of life forms, many life forms, and, uh, and also different locales that I realized, the physical and non-physical locales. When Locale you, 2 was a lot more interesting, which is a non-physical universe, by the way. Places where people go where they pass away. And, uh, you know, entities. But there are entities that feed on fear. Fear is a powerful emotion, and it's food to them. It's mana to them. So they will, they will cause fear in human beings, and they continue to do this up to this day. And they will feed on that emotion and, and absorb it. So they'll do that to you. And there are beings, of course... Beings that are physical, non-physical, that will feed on fear too, right? As you know, pirates, right? But yeah. there are beings that are that will do that to you. Once you learn to to do the experience, once you learn to have the OBs at will, and you learn to understand that they can't harm you, which could take a while, but you can do it, then you'll have these incredible experiences. Did you have just a quick answer to this one, please? Did you have uh, any explanation from um, anyone that you went to seek some counsel? for regarding these experiences as to what you may have been witnessing? Did anybody give you an explanation? Yeah, uh, Mr. Monroe. That's why I went to the Monroe Institute. Uh, their first program was seven days long, and I read his book, Gertie's Out of the Body, Far Journeys. And in the books that he had, he explained there was many scenarios and many experiences that he had had, which I had also as well. And they were, they were you know, it's like... It's a, there is a commonality there because there are places that, that exist in a non-physical, just as physical places exist. So I, when I read his books and I went to the Monroe, the girl, girlfriend I was dating at the time told me about the place. And I went there and I took their seven-day program. And then I went many times, many times after that. And then basically you, you know that you're not, you know, you're okay. But you have to understand that if you have these, you have to be careful who you tell. Because there are people, too, that will to tell the parents and tell others, and if they're not enlightened enough, 
they may suspect that you have something wrong with you and they give you a drug, which is bad. So there's a lot of people probably that have these experiences that unfortunately probably are on medication or drugs that prevent them from having it consciously or, you know, they just don't, you know, it prevents them from, from feeling anything. Right, so they won't have the experience, you right, know, consciously. Right. They'll just have it unconsciously. And everybody has this, by the way, every night. Everybody believes their body every night. Mm. Everyone does it without. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind. Everybody will leave their body and go to different places, but they're doing it unconsciously. When you start to become conscious, that's when you start, you know, picking up on these things. I mean, they, they, they affect you consciously as well. So you, um, you can you can do this at will now. You can actually control yes. and direct this uh, at at See, you know at at will. Yes, I, I I do it. I project about three four times a week. I have lucid dreams at night, where I wake up and become aware of the dream state. And uh, I had these both these ex- experiences for many years, and I didn't know what I was doing at first when I was younger, and uh, and then I learned to tell the difference between having an out-of-body experience and having a lucid dream, and it's not, it's not impossible for people to learn, and I think with all the time we have on our hands these days, uh, people can learn how to lucid dream. Lucid dreaming would be easy to learn first, but they could also, you know, once they start having that and become, they become uh, conscious of the dream state, then they'll start having OBs as well, and, and I have some techniques on my website on the lucid dreaming and an OB state too. If people check my site, they can check out some of the techniques that I have there. Okay. So um, you've had, you had these out-of-body experiences. You uh, went to the Monroe Institute. You got some counsel. You learned how to control them. You actually uh, performed them at will. When does remote viewing come into the picture for you? Well, remote viewing, uh, it came into the picture. I guess I started remote viewing too, I guess, in my teens. You do everybody remote views. It's a modern terminology for clairvoyance, right? So basically, it's the ability to perceive people, places, and other things that are remote time and space and bring back information on a target or something that you're seeing. So people, they dream, they pick up images, they pick up sounds, they pick up impressions. That's remote viewing in a way, right? So there is a protocol that you can learn that can teach the average person to remote view. Some people will be more actually uh, attuned to it than others. But I, I have taught about 6,000 people how to remote view in my various programs. And you, you can learn the technique. And it's probably, it's a lot easier to learn to remote view to have that, to have a conscious OBE. But once you start learning to remote view, you can, there's so much that you can do in that state. So you teach so people, basically, you actually teach people how to remote view. Yes. Yes. Let, I've, let, been, I've been let me ask sharing you this. my knowledge and teaching for the last probably 30 plus years. One one of the things that we do on this program every once in a while, we're not going to do it tonight, but um, I will uh, do what I call a remote viewing psychic experiment. I will, and I, I make it rather somewhat easy. I use a, a deck of playing cards and I pull a card from the deck and I ask, and I focus on it, concentrate on it, and I ask my listeners to call in and try to connect with me and the card and tell me what the card is. Um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of success because it's kind of, you know, it's at the spur of the moment. There's not a lot of time. But if you had to give my audience some advice as to how they could improve their accuracy with something like that, what would you say to them? Well, for one thing, you'd have to learn, you have to, learn to relax and to be, get into a focused state of attention. So the normal state of consciousness, J.V., is the uh, better brainwave state. You have to get into an alpha brainwave state, which is a focused state of attention. 
So you're focused. You can't remote view. You can't do anything on an intuitive level unless your mind is focused, you know. So it's a hypnotic state. Uh, when you do the lucid dreaming, that's, that's a, a REM state, which is a uh, uh, theta brainwave state. But the alpha state, you have to learn to relax and focus your mind and let whatever impressions come to you. But the thing about the remote viewing protocol is that you learn to remote view a target and you learn to open your aperture, your psychic aperture at will. You open it and you close it. So, but basically people remote view, but their aperture is at a 180 degree angle or 360 degrees. They're picking up too much stimulus or too much information and it doesn't apply to anything that they're really focused on. So basically you would have a friend you could have a friend uh, look at a magazine, rip out a page with a picture on it, and then you would tell your friend to give you whatever impressions they're picking up on the on the image on the on the uh, picture. And but they would be in an alpha brainwave state first, so which is focus, relaxed state of attention. When you remote view, how much detail can you pick up? Let's say. Um, let's say you, you you were working with somebody and they're sitting in a room and looking around the room, how much detail of that room can you pick up? Well, I have, the, the, when I learned coordinate remote viewing and extended remote viewing, uh, the, the, uh, that's a deeper type of remote viewing, usually uh, we would do a target and it would be about 30 to 50 pages of data. So remote viewing is not a standalone feature, JV, but okay. it's an information retrieval system. So basically, um, I have helped some detectives in some cases here in Toronto, and basically, I could fill in a piece of a puzzle that they're missing. Oh, really? Right? Can, can you share? Mm-hmm. Can you share a specific case with us? Something that 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 helped well, uh, like help a, law enforcement? Like a missing persons case, you know, is uh, you know, missing persons case. Okay, so now what? What when you learn to remote view, they're not going to give you information ahead of time because they, you you have to be able to develop your ability. But for missing persons, it's missing, I'm being front loaded, so I'm giving a I'm giving a target where I know there's a person already missing. Right, the the, you, the least information you get is the the better. So uh, a remote viewer will not get any information other than okay, this is a missing person. All right, so I tell them okay, it's a missing person. I pick up a female life form. I pick up a uh, energy, you know, of a you know of a girl, and she's between ten and fifty years old, right? And then I write down the information that I have. You know, her father came in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning and took his child with him without the mother's knowledge, right? So the police had to find out. Okay, okay know, hold on, hold on, Michael. They knew she was kidnapped, but they didn't know by exactly who. Michael? So I would I would give it from, yes. I just I just need some clarification here because the way you just described that to me, and I don't know if it's just the way you're using the example, but... You, if you, if you saw, and I, I'm not sure if this is even a, a true story that you're, you're giving us here, but if you saw uh, the father come and take the girl at three in the morning, that's something that happened in the past. That to me is a little bit different than remote viewing. Isn't that more of a psychic connection? Well, yeah, that's what well, the remote viewing is uh, a psychic ability, right? Well, I, I think it's, 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 I, it's I clairvoyance, always, right? The modern terminology for clairvoyance. Sure, I think there is. Right? I think there is some clairvoyant components to it but my understanding of remote viewing has always been you know you can see something that is happening contemporarily like something that's happening at the moment you can tap into that but you're actually talking about kind of broadening that if you will to yes. include what yes. i would consider to be more of a of a, a traditional psychic phenomenon 
Yes, yes, and that's what it is. But okay. it's, remote okay. viewing is a, a structure and a protocol okay. right, that you follow, right? And that would you you would go deeper into the target. You would well, uh, what's the emotional state of the child? You know, are they are they uh, you know are they tired? Are they hungry? You know, you could pick up a lot of things. You may pick up a, a location. You know where the where the person is. Pick up a satellite, but you're not you're not judging any of this information that's coming to you. you. You train yourself to be able to absorb and pick up this information from the matrix, so to speak, and then you would write everything down. You know, and uh, there's a certain you know certain structure you follow. The, you know, you would write down the emotional impacts, the tangibles, the intangibles. So there's a lot of detail that goes into a target. That's an actual target that I did, by the way. Yeah. But there's but there's an action. So so it could be something about a person, uh, a spy in a company, uh, spies or corporate spies, you know, that exist really in real life. And there are remote viewers in the States. There are groups of them that are hired by multi-billion dollar companies to find out who their spy is. So they would have 10 remote viewers. They would give them these numbers that are associated to the target. And then they would have, you know, four, five, six hundred pages of data from the 10 to, uh, 10 uh, remote viewers, and then the monitor would put it all together and then give it to the person. So they would look at that, and, they would, and each remote viewer does not know what the other one is doing, of course. So they would put it together, and they would you know, put all the information together, and then it would give them a window. They would, it would give them great information of what's happening, uh, maybe what kind of, uh, you know, what the spire might look like, what their age category is, or they got a birthmark, you know, on their left hand, uh, give a description of the person and so on and so forth. And there'd be five or six people that would fit that description and then they would have them followed and then they would see when the guy gets a briefcase under the table with quarter million dollars or more and he would pass off secrets to the other person. Interesting. If somebody that's an actual that's actual scenarios too. Yeah, if if somebody or law enforcement or maybe just a private individual, uh let's say somebody is, has a loved one that is missing. Um, how would you start with them to help them find, get some information to maybe locate where that loved one is? Well, for one, you know, for one thing, they'd have to have confidence in you, right? And, uh, you know, detectives will go to psychics, but remote viewers are trained. Don't forget, psychics may not be. Psychics, a professional psychic may just keep relying on natural ability. Not to say that they're not psychic or nothing, but uh, you know, going to a remote viewer, you know, for a certain target, it's not good just to have one remote viewer on a target. You want to have three, four, or five, and this way, each remote viewer will pick up a different aspect of the target. You know, that data is put together, as I mentioned, then they will see a pattern developing there, and then the information, you know, give an extremely important piece of the puzzle that's missing. And, and, and there's, there's medical protocols, by the way, for remote viewing. There's a law enforcement protocol, okay, where it helps detectives, you know, where they have learned it in the States. Uh, there's, and then there's a personal, you know, protocol, of course. And so there's different protocols that you can apply the remote viewing, you know, abilities to. Do you do that for private clients? Oh, yeah. I've done it, I've done it for many private clients. Uh, most of my clients are in the United States. I'm in Canada here. Canada seems to be a little bit, uh, 
reluctant, you know, the law enforcement, uh, you know, here is not as open to it as the American law enforcement are, and I'm not sure why that is, but they do know, I do know that a couple of groups in the United States that they all make a living doing this with their professional remote viewers and their task with a target, you know, for, you know, looking for a, you know, counter, you know, they're looking for uh, either a spy or, uh, uh, you know, in a corporation or who's leaking secrets or it could be very, you know, important cases, you know, um, but they're going to work on very, very, you know, important cases. It could be, uh, you know, a billionaire, his son gets kidnapped, mm-hmm. you know, who did the kidnapping, why they did it, and so on and so forth. And so the remote viewers have a high uh, statistical success. These, these two groups that I'm talking about, they're very good. And so once the word gets around, then, you know, you'll be contacted. But it's not openly known to the public, general public. You, When you do a remote viewing session, one that's particularly uh, intense, does it drain you physically? No. No. It, 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 the OBE will drain me much more. And, but the remote viewing, basically, it's like looking, it's like seeing, uh, it's like seeing a TV screen in your head. And it's like you could go to the target, you could pick up different aspects of the target, you could pick up scents, feel, touches, all kinds of things. Um, you learn, you learn to pick up as much of the target as possible, like a sponge. But, but, no, it won't train you, but it could be, there could be cases where you get a target, okay, where, the, where you may connect with a target where the was murdered, you know, or uh, where it's a, a situation where there was a war zone or something like that. That might be emotionally draining, but you also train yourself not to be not to be affected by that. But it depends. It depends. But I, I don't normally feel drained because I'm, for the extended remote viewing, I'm buying down, and I'm, more, I'm a more natural extended remote viewer, which which means I get into a deeper brain state than just the alpha. I get into the alpha instead of brainwave state. Uh, but basically, when you're doing the coordinate remote viewing, the basic remote viewing, you're sitting in a comfortable chair with a pen and you know lots of paper, and then you're you're doing the six proto- six stages in the protocol. So you stay focused on the target. You you don't you don't associate with it personally. You don't know what it is, and you just it'll come to you. It's like a vision's coming to you. It could be like you know you see a page turning quickly. You know, and you see all these impressions, or maybe looking at a TV screen. Sometimes it could be foggy. It could be very clear. You learn to get rid of the white noise, the white sound. You train yourself to do that first because everybody has that. You have to learn to get rid of that, you know, so that you can have clearer images. And sometimes my images can be just as clear as if my, if my eyes were open. But I'm not, wow. you know, I'm 2,000 miles away, or maybe I am at the pass. You can remote view the pass, by the way. And the remote viewers in Project Stargate, uh, can, they did remote view the pass in the future. And they, they, they did that very success, successfully. Uh, we've talked about um, your, let's see, your out-of-body experiences, your escape uh, performances, your remote viewing, but you also talk about UFOs. Uh, tell me how you got involved in talking about UFOs. Well, when I started having OBEs, and, uh, you know, you, there's, a high, there's a high strangeness uh, that occurs when you have the OBEs and the remote viewing. And... When you have these experiences, you'll see these, you know, you see an object in the sky that you don't, you wouldn't see physically in the, in the physical world. But you project at least your, your, your second body, your energy body, your astral body, you project and I go outside, all of a sudden I see this large craft in the sky, 
right? And it's what you would call a UFO. But it's not visible in the physical world. It's visible in that state of energy, that locale, right? And the remote viewers and the people that had the OBEs, the remote viewers of part of Stargate, when they remote viewed, they would do the targets and they would be pulled off target by these strange objects in the sky which were UFOs. So the remote viewer would automatically be attracted to it like a moth to a light, you know, to a powerful light. So I was also, that happened to me too, so I would go to the object, I would I wouldn't want it to, to get inside the object, but every time I go near it, it would fly away. And then we'd see another one come another distance, I would go after it, and it would fly away. So for for years, I see these objects that are not visible to the naked eye, yeah. but they're vibrating on a different frequency of energy. So they're visible, they're visible, visible because you're on that same energy level. So what, one year, I made it my goal to want to get one of these ships. And I, one year, I learned, you know, how to, you know, I was learning to develop my ability better. This was either through the OBE or the remote viewing state, but I learned to tether my mind to the ship. So I was able to get on the ship. So I was able, to, and then there were beings inside the ship. And that, but that took me a long time, and I was, it, was, it was a great experience. You said, um, I think the words you used, vibrate on a different frequency, these crafts, and you can see them when you're, when you're having the out-of-body experience or the remote viewing because you're on that frequency. Does that phrase, vibrate on a different frequency, uh, equal uh, an alternate dimension? Is it the same thing? Yeah, you could call it that if you want. The fourth dimension, an alternate dimension. It's a, it's a, you know, there are different energy systems, right? And that is it. There's the dream dimension. There's the, the energy dimension when you project or have a remote view. Uh, and so it's a, there are a lot of different frequencies in the energy, right? Uh, you know, that exists in the world. Uh, uh, TV, you know, airwaves, radio airwaves are visible, but they exist. And, and then there are energy systems and, and dimensions that exist that are parallel to ours. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, and then these these beings are able to make themselves invisible by vibrating a few seconds, maybe into the future, and so they're not visible to the naked eye. But if you project or have a remote viewing session, you you will see them. And once you do, you 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 ignore the target and you and you go to it. You know, so it's, it's difficult not to because your curiosity becomes so powerful that you just want to find out what's inside there, right? And one and, and as I mentioned, when one time I did get on the ship. And it took me a long time, but I did get on, and there were two entities there. And as soon as they got on, they they turned and they they looked at me, and they and then and, you know I I I was surprised that they noticed me. I should have been surprised. I thought I was invisible, but uh, they told me to please leave, and I said no, I'm not going to. What can you do, right? So one being, uh, he had a belt, looked like a belt. And these beings were about five feet tall. And he had a belt, looked like it was studded with diamonds. He pulled a rod out of his belt that looked like it was studded with diamonds and he came towards me so I didn't have any fear I learned at this time to eliminate my fear and he came towards me and I thought he was going to I don't know what he was going to do tell you the truth maybe give it to me or something but he almost touched me and what happened was I got a tremendous electrical shock and I immediately went right back to my physical body and I kind of jumped off the bed <laughs> you know oh. with a strong jolt of energy or whatever that hit me and you know, it was it was a great experience because I I uh, I finally got on, on board one of those. Yeah, ships. did in any of these in any of these uh, experiences when you um, encountered these beings, did you get any chance to have any kind of conversation with them that would give you some information as to who they are and where they're from? 
Yeah, well, it sounds tremendous. Uh, so when you're, you're uh, having these out-of-body experiences, you said uh, several times a week, when you have them, now that you can do that at will, do you have an intention? Do you, ha- do you, do you have a deliberate destination that uh, you set to explore? I mean, what, do you, what is the, if you're doing that, yes. if, you, if you're actually yes. doing this at will, what's your intention and what's the purpose for doing well, it? I'll tell you, the, the, one of the intentions you learn once you learn how to do this, the physical world is a pretty boring place. Okay, I know that the, we live in a great world and a great planet, we do, but compared to Locale 2 or other energy systems, the physical world is kind of boring and humdrum. So what I project, I learned to shift shift gears, you could say, and, and go on to this, you know, super highway or whatever you want to call it, and, and into the matrix and go to a particular locale, right? But I never know... I never know where I'm going to end up always, right? But I have felt like I've been on the moon, uh, Mars. Uh, we did get targets, by the way, for Mars and the dark side of the moon. Uh, military had targets for that, too, as well. Uh, other, other places. And I learned, you know, not to bother too much with the physical world. Um, you know, I was stuck here. Like, at the beginning, I, I wanted to have these experiences on another plateau, but I couldn't. Um, so I was kind of stuck in the physical because of my belief systems. But once you learn to do them, you connect with life forms, with beings that have died or passed on, loved ones, people, historical figures, famous people. Uh, you know, if they're available, if they're if they're reachable, it's like having a phone number. You have to know their energy signature first. But it's like having to phone someone's number and calling them. They're not going to take a call. You know, they're too busy, or they're going to ignore their, the voicemail or whatever. So it's not like I can contact anybody who's passed on. You know, uh, your loved ones you're most likely to connect with, and I have. I've, I've connected with everyone that I've known in my life that has passed on. Oh, wow. My best, best friends, family, my mother. Mm. Uh, so I've been able. My stepfather. I've been able to do that as well when I projected. Uh, and uh, in the beginning, I didn't know how. You know how to do it. For example, I would project. Right in my room, and I'd see a telephone, black telephone, the old-fashioned kind, in the corner of my room at a table. It looked like from the 1930s, and in real life, the physical you know dimension, there is no little table there with a phone. So I pick up the phone, I say hello, and I wanted to connect with my stepfather, who guess who's on the other line? My stepfather. You know, I picked up the phone, I said hi. He said hi, a sport. How are you doing? And he was calling or he was connecting with me from the other side. And I didn't know yet how to shift to get to that side. 
And I say to him, I talk to him, and after what seemed to be a, a minute or so, you can't rec- you recognize time. There is no time in that state. I ask him, where are you calling from? And when I did, the line went dead. I put the phone back up down on the, on the phone. I picked it up again. I said, hello. And then the conversation resumed like nothing happened. And then a second time, after a little longer talking to my stepdad, I'd ask him, where, where are you calling from? And then there was a dead, dead air again. And it was very eerie when that happened. Yeah. I put the phone down, picked it up again, and said, hi. Conversation resumed. And then I didn't ask where he was calling, where I was, you know, calling from or whatever. Wow. Uh, some incredible stuff. We're running out of time here. Yeah. You know, you've talked about your escapes. You've talked about remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, actually meeting some type of extraterrestrial or alien figure, whatever it happens to be, or interdimensional. Yeah. Um, but yes. one of the things I think is probably the most amazing work you do that I read on your website is that you uh, you actually guessed the color of people's underwear. Did I read that correctly? <laughs> Yeah, well, when you become a when you become a, a, a paranormalist and a mentalist, and you learn techniques of mentalism, and you start really doing the real stuff, then you, you realize something's going on. So, at the time, I was remote viewing, right? And and the thing is, is that you remote view. Everybody remote views. You, for example, you get the impression of a person, right? And you're thinking about them, and then the phone rings and it's them. So, you know, you you pick up the impression of them calling you. They do, but you're not knowing that they're going to call you, of course. But it could be anything. Uh, you know, uh, you're thinking of a celebrity in your mind, and you go home, and your girlfriend rented a video with that celebrity on it. So people will not view it, just that they don't know how to, uh, you know, make sense of the information they're getting because they're not focusing their aperture, their psychic senses, you know, to a particular thing. Um, so anybody can learn how to do these abilities. They're not, they're not, they're, 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 everyone possesses these abilities. They're all inherent, and all of us, JV. There's, there's no doubt in my mind, right? But you have to believe that you're more than your physical self because if you don't have that belief, at least, then you're not going to be able to think that there's other finer energies out there. And if you don't think that, then you're not going to think about other dimensions. And we know from quantum physics, there are the dimensions out there, many dimensions, many worlds, many plateaus, and there's just so much that you can do and learn. And it's like you're having four life, life spans or four life Four different lives, your physical life, your dream life, your astral life, you know, your, your other life. It's like, uh, you know, you, you just, you absorb a lot. Let me put it that way. And people say to me, well, Michael, doesn't it drive you crazy being conscious all the time? This is, no, I'm not. There are times where I'm in a Delta state where I'm totally unconscious. And I like that. But when you do learn to do this, you're going to find yourself waking up in bed. Maybe you'll be in a hypnagogic state where your body is, is paralyzed and you can't move, but you could, perceived other sounds and things in that state. That's a very fine state, too. So everybody can learn these things, and there are a lot of signs and a lot of techniques, you know, things that they can, you know, learn to, 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 to develop them. And once you develop them, it expands your world. It really magnifies it a lot, a lot you know. It really right. opens up your eyes to a lot of possibilities out there. And I, I like to do this. I like to, you know, uh, use the ability to do my, my paranormal work, you know, and telling about the other or whatever. That's just simple stuff, you know. But, you know, um, you know, that was just having some fun with the ability, right? <laughs> Uh, Michael, your website is your name, michaeltelstar.com. That's where people can get more information about contacting you or booking yeah. you or just keeping up on your work. Anything else you want people yeah, to know people about? Could, 
people could write to me, uh, answer questions. People welcome to look at my site. It's two R's on Telstar, by the way, T-E-L-S-T-A-R-R. And um, there are tips and techniques there on, on how to uh, get into the second state and how to lose a dream. And, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm open to uh, whatever, you know, and I know this COVID-19 thing here is really making it kind of difficult for a lot of people to do what they want to do. Yeah. But uh, I think you should use the extra time and have a look at my techniques, methods, you know, and if anybody has a question or whatever, they're free, free to write me through my website. That's terrific. Thanks for your time, Michael. Thanks for being here tonight. It was a great conversation. Appreciate yes. it. Yes, and I hope to see you or talk to you again soon, JB. Sounds great. Okay, once again, it's Michael Telstar. Telstar is T-E-L-S-T-A-R-R. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.